Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 16, if you would. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, again, that you would enlighten us, give us wisdom, spiritual understanding, and knowledge of your will. Bless our time together, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen? Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at the first 15 verses. This is a uh, parable that Jesus teaches, and it's a parable that for... Most people, it's not really that well understood. It's one of the most difficult parables Jesus teaches. And so we're going to unwrap it a little bit and see what is in that parable for us this morning. Now Jesus has been, if you look at the previous passages, Jesus has been talking to and speaking to the Jewish leaders. So he's really been evangelizing, if you will. And now he turns from them and he's going to talk to his disciples. So this is, a, this is training, instruction for his disciples, hence it's training and instruction for us. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me, welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters, 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen? Of all the parables that Jesus teaches, fully a third of those parables have something to do with money. Isn't that interesting? They have something to do with money. And the fact that money played such a key role in Jesus' teaching should not surprise us. Why? Because money has such a dominant place in people's lives, does it not? Absolutely. It has such a dominant place in society, in our lives. We, we spend a lot of time thinking about money. How to get it. How to keep it. How to spend it. How to save it. How to borrow it. Sometimes even how to give it away. So we think a lot about money. And the widespread preoccupation with money that dominates our world results not in love, joy, and peace necessarily. We've all heard the proverbial stories and we've met people who have sought money and money has become their God and what it's done to their life. And so it doesn't always lead to the kinds of emotional responses and peace that we'd hope in our life. Rather, for many people, it's led to anxiety. It's brought them to a place where they are covetous, selfish, greedy, discontent. Money becomes, in effect, their God. And for money, some people even murder. Money is, in and of itself not a bad thing. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he warns Timothy, as Timothy is to instruct the congregation, people who want to get rich fall into temptation. Now, if God chooses to bless, that's one thing. But if your motivation is to get rich, I want to get rich, then very simply and very easily, money can become your God. You will serve it and you'll do everything you can to gain it. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now notice this. It's for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What is it? It's the love of money. It's not money in and of itself. Money in and of itself is a neutral thing. But it's the love of money. It's what we do with it and how we hunger for it. He goes on and he says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That is a, that's a very, very important word. Would you agree? Very important word. And all of us at some point have to stop and check ourselves. Uh, am I living for money? Is do I love money? And sometimes we get so immersed in that that we don't really realize where we are. And hence, we have to evaluate ourselves. As I said earlier, this parable of Jesus is considered by many to be the most difficult of all of his parables. 
to understand. And the reason is because Jesus chooses to use as the main character of his parable who? Yeah, an unjust steward, right? A guy that cheats his, cheats his boss. A guy that's embezzling from the company. Does, it sound, does that sound reasonable that Jesus is going to use somebody like that as the chief character of his parable? Well, he does. And it's in the parable that Jesus emphasizes this admirable quality that the dishonest manager possesses. The rest of his actions, the rest of his behavior is corrupt. But he has this one significant quality that believers should seek to emulate. So he's going to hold this corrupt manager up in this one area, and he says believers, people of light, should emulate this man in this one particular area. In the parable, as we see, as we work through our way through it, it's really what's, this, it's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If something is true in a lesser place, then it's probably true in the greater place. We understand this. If you're a parent, you teach your kids to be faithful in little things. If they're faithful in little things, they can be trusted with greater things. So there's a, there's a consistency there. If this quality is admirable, if this quality is expedient in the life of a reprobate, if you will, a thief, a liar, imagine what it would be like in the life of a regenerate person, of a believer. This is Jesus' main point. Now the parable is fairly straightforward. In the first eight verses, you have a wealthy man he owns probably what is, in effect, a large wholesale agricultural business. And his chief manager has been found to be dishonest. He's fraudulent. He has been embezzling and wasting the rich man's resources and money. The owner confronts the manager. He fires him. And now the dishonest manager is in a quandary. He knows he's about to lose his cushy management job, so he has to come up with a strategy. He says to himself, you know, I've been a white-collar worker all these years. I don't think I can become a blue-collar worker. I don't think I can dig. And I'm too proud to beg. So he has to come up with a strategy that will keep his lifestyle going. And it's a fascinating strategy. Reciprocation. Reciprocation was a, a very prominent theme in Jewish society. In other words, if I were to do you a big favor, then you were bound, honor bound, to in turn do me a big favor. So he's going to trade on that dynamic in that Jewish culture. And he's going to do some people a big favor. What's he going to do for them? Yeah, he's going to reduce their debt. Apparently, he still has time before he's supposed to exit the business. He quickly calls in some of his boss's clients and debtors and tells them to what? Have or cut down the amount they owed the master. Is that a huge favor? Yeah, 
Big time, huge favor. Big time. Now, Jesus' main point is this. That just as he is shrewd and just as he is very clever in winning friends for himself, so he's cut down all their debts. He's done them a tremendous favor. So now he's out of work. What's supposed to happen? What's the reciprocal? Yeah, they're going to take care of him. They're going to welcome him into their houses. So he's not going to be left out on the doorstep, uh, homeless, if you will. Cool idea, huh? Jesus says the people of light should be as shrewd as this man in using the resources God has entrusted to us, more particularly using worldly wealth. Believers should know how to use money as skillfully in establishing relationships as unbelievers do. He establishes relationships for himself. You and I should use money in establishing relationships for ourselves. Now, what kind of relationships should we be establishing for ourselves in the use of money? What do you think? Should we invest in the kingdom of God so that people get saved, lives get changed, people mature, people have a whole new life, but it comes as a result of what? Of Christians investing with God in his kingdom. Why do we support missionaries? Because we're told to? No, we support missionaries because we believe in the work that's going on that though we'll never see this side of heaven, hardly any of those people that, get, that come into the kingdom, uh, in heaven we're going to see those people. And they're going to welcome us. If, if they should go to heaven before us when we finally cross over, they're going to welcome us, Jesus says, into eternal dwellings. We're participating with God in what he is doing in seeing people's lives changed, transformed, seeing people saved. Friends will welcome us into our heavenly, heavenly home. In other words, we should shrewdly use the privilege of grace giving to invest in the salvation, to invest in the spiritual growth and the loving life development of as many people as we possibly can. It's one thing to witness. It's one thing to lead someone to Christ. But it's a whole other thing to invest in their life, to spend time with them, to take them to lunch, to buy them dinner, to help them get a Bible, whatever it takes. The local church is an environment where people can come and grow. Are you glad for the local church? Yeah. I've been coming here since the early 70s. And I thank God for the church. I thank God for all the people that have touched my life and, and participated in my life. I thank, I'm thankful for all the people who gave faithfully to keep the doors open and to keep the church staffed and to keep ministry going on on an ongoing basis. When you and I get to heaven, people are going to come up to us, people are going to greet us, welcome us, that we had no idea. We never knew them never even knew anything about them. 
this side of heaven. Isn't that exciting? See, we're not spending, or, or, or we're not spending God's money, we're investing his money. Think about that. God, I want to invest with you in what you're doing in this world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. He talks about where our treasure should be. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. I don't know how many of you may have been the victim of a robbery or break-in or something, but you know how devastating that can be. But he says, look, store up treasure where? Where stored up in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If my treasure is in the stock market, where's my heart going to be? Yeah, I'm, all my attention is going to be focused there. If my treasure is in some other arena, all my attention is going to be focused there. If my treasure, if I'm learning what it means to store up my treasure in heaven, simply meaning to invest with God in what he's doing in this world. Billy Graham just died. Tremendous loss. 99 years old. Amazing man. Gifted man. Can you imagine all the people who are greeting him in heaven, saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Just, just absolutely amazing. We're investing in advancing the gospel. You have to wrap your mind around that. I'm investing with God. I'm participating with God in what he is doing in this world and in this life. And as I do so, I am making countless friends who will recognize me as friend throughout all eternity. Now Jesus tells us five things, five facts about earthly finances. In verse 9, he tells us that money doesn't last. It's going to ultimately fail. It's not if, it's when. When's it going to fail? When we die. And then when Christ comes back, right? Absolutely. If money is my end all, if it's my be all, I'm going down the wrong path. Doesn't mean I shouldn't work, be diligent, provide income and so forth. But if it's my goal and my desire to be rich, I'm going down the wrong path. God chooses to bless, wonderful. If he chooses not to bless, wonderful. I trust him. Either way, I'm going to work hard and be faithful. In verse 10, he tells us that money is a very little thing. It's not a huge thing like most people make out of it. It's a very little thing. In verse 11, he tells us that money is not the true riches, but God gives us true riches later if we are faithful. 
We all understand the principle of delayed gratification, do we not? Sure. You work hard, you work hard, you go to school, you, pr you provide a foundation so that later on there's fruit to be born. And the same principle he tells us about here. He says money is not the true riches, but God gives those later if we are faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. There's lots of stuff in life that comes at us. Lots of stuff in life that seeks to undermine us, discourage us, uh, defeat us. But the, 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 the issue for us is to continue to be faithful. Continue to be faithful. Sometimes you're praying for something, you're praying, God, do this, God, do this, do this, help me, help me, help me, and you pray and you pray, nothing seems to change. Should you quit praying? No, continue to pray. Because why? God is faithful at the appointed hour, at just the right minute, and he knows when that is, relief will come. He's promised that. I love the passage in Isaiah they that wait upon the Lord. Lord, I'm waiting on you. My hope is in you. My trust is in you. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Rise up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not, be, not faint. There's a hope there. A confidence there. In verse 12. Jesus tells us that money, which belongs to another, is simply to test our faithfulness. Whose money is it? It's all God's. It's all God's. I had a conversation with a man a few years ago, and he was going through a divorce. His wife was divorcing him, and he had a lot of money, and she wanted a ton of it. And he just said, no, he just dug his heels in. And he was just not going to give her a penny. And so he was talking to me about this, and he was just angry, and he was pounding the desk. And I stopped him, and I said, well, wait a minute, let me ask you a question. Whose money is it really? And he said, well, it's God's. All right, so if it's God's money, it's not yours, give it to her. Give her what she wants. Can God restore it? I suppose. So he did. He gave her what she wanted. I think it amounted to a couple million dollars. And it wasn't just a couple years later. He came and he said God had restored all of that, plus the increase was even greater. Money belongs to him, not to us. We're to be stewards over it. And it's a test for us. Life is full of spiritual tests. Did you notice that yet? Life is full of spiritual tests. How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to respond to this? We have choices to make in our life every day, do we not? What kind of choice am I going to make? And very often the choices we make are not going to be, in the short run, are not going to be, we think, in our own best interest. They're going to be costly choices. 
but they're tests for our faithfulness. Tests our loyalty. Tests our spirituality. Tests our faithfulness as managers. And if we prove faithful, God can entrust us with greater riches, greater resources. And lastly, in verse 13, money, money in and of itself is a test. It's a test to see if we will serve God only, not money, not riches. God, will I serve you? You've entrusted resources to me. I want to be faithful. I want to serve you with whatever you've entrusted to me. Again, another test. Can you outgive God? What do you think? Are you sure? God has a meager storehouse. He has only so much he can meet out to us, right? No, his storehouse is unending. He creates amazingly. The challenge is will we be just like this unjust steward who took care of himself? Will we be just as shrewd to invest with God to ensure the fact that when we cross over that we'll be greeted by many new friends? I've talked to people in the past who about going to heaven and about investing with God and rewards and so forth, and we, we're going to be judged for the, on the, for the basis of, of rewards. And I've talked to people who say, well, you know, I just, you know, I don't care about, the, I just want to get in. If I can just get in, that'll be, that'll be enough. Shame on you. I don't know about you, I want to cross that line in a blaze of glory. I want to go busted into heaven. I want to cross over and hallelujah. And I do want to accrue rewards. Not for my own benefit. So that I may lay them at his feet as an act of worship. Lord, my whole life, I live for your glory. And you've blessed that. You've honored that by all these rewards. And I now I lay these at your feet as an act of my worship. We're continuing to worship him throughout all eternity. We're continuing to worship him. And so, the question is, will we serve God, or do we serve money? Do we find ourselves in places where we're self-absorbed, where we're selfish, or are we learning to be generous people? Are we learning? Accent on the word learning. I'm learning to be more and more generous. God has promised me that if I give, he will what? He'll leave me in a lurch. If I give what? He'll make sure it's poured back into my lap, overflowing. I hope our attitude with respect to giving is in line with Jesus' attitude. I hope that we would see our giving as investing with God in what he's doing in and through the local church, and more particularly our local church. God is doing great things 
He's doing great things. Our best days are still ahead of us. Do you know that? I'm excited about all the young people coming to our church. I'm excited about what God is doing in this new generation that's coming. I'm excited about the faithfulness of faithful givers over the years that have made all this possible for the variety of ministries. Are we shrewd? Are we shrewd managers in the use of the money that God has given us? I'll leave that question with you. Lord, thank you again for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to be faithful in every area, and especially, Lord, with respect to the material resources you give us. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for every good gift. We thank you, Lord, that you know everything. And, Lord, that we can trust you and trust your word and not worry and not fret. But, Lord, be at peace and at rest. As we come to your table, Father, cause us to examine ourselves. We ask you to search our hearts. If there be any wrong or hurtful way in us, any unforgiveness, any bitterness, Lord, that you would point those things out and we would repent of them and come with clean hands. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hope.org chapel.org